After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me free, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked you, asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers are c coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. You may be seated and let's pray together as we come here to the conclusion of the book of Acts. Our God and our Father, would you be with us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning to be able to understand your living and active word? Would you illuminate its meaning to us and would you continue to use it to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds? Father, would you challenge us in new ways this morning by your word? to understand the ways in which we need to change in our lives, to be conformed more and more to the image of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray today that you would be honored as we come to your word, that you would speak powerfully to us, transformatively to us as we approach your word this morning. May we do it with reverent hearts 
And may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here we are. Today we will wrap up our long study together of the book of Acts. We started this series a little more than two years ago, back in July of 2020, when the world found itself in the midst of a pandemic, but Jesus was continuing to build his church, was he not? This will be our 67th sermon together in the book of Acts, as we've worked through Luke's account of the birth of the New Testament church in Jerusalem and the ascension of the risen Lord Jesus Christ into heaven, leaving his earthly disciples with the promise that he would return in the same bodily visible way that he had left and also leaving them with that great calling. Remember to be messengers of the gospel, messengers of his, messengers of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And we've seen how marvelously God enabled them to do that and worked through those first disciples and through the apostles in order to overcome all kinds of unbelief and opposition against the the newly forming church and, and even overcome growing persecution as the Holy Spirit enabled the the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles to be completely broken down, and as He caused faith to flourish all around the Roman Empire, especially through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, because Paul was given new life himself. Paul was raised from spiritual death himself. Paul was given new eyes, literally, to be able to see and believe the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he became entirely devoted to preaching Christ crucified and Christ risen everywhere he went, all throughout Judea, all throughout Syria, all throughout Asia, all throughout Macedonia, all throughout Greece, and today he's going to make it all the way to Italy, all the way to Rome itself. So last week, in chapter 27, we traced the, the beginnings of that journey from Caesarea, where he had been imprisoned for a few years, through the Mediterranean, down to Crete, where you remember that ship got caught up in the the tempestuous storm, as Luke calls it, a a great typhoon, hurricane force winds that drove that ship all the way to the island of Malta and left it stranded on a sandbar there, and the, the wind and the waves broke the ship into pieces, which many of the passengers and sailors and crew of the ship were able to ride on to shore there in Malta so that the word of God will be fulfilled, that neither Paul nor anybody else on that ship would be lost. The ship itself would be, but all of their lives were by the mercy of God spared. So they spent three months there on Malta, Luke says in verse 11 now of Acts chapter 28. And as we saw at the end of our time last week, God was at work during those three months in powerful ways while they were there in Malta. He miraculously healed everybody on that island of every disease that they had. And he rendered faith in the hearts of many people there. And a church was born there on the little island of Malta. Initially it was led by Publius who was the the governor of that island, the, the, the chief amongst the people there. Paul had healed his father first, you remember, And then we saw that Publius, according to history, ended up being martyred for his faith in Jesus. 
many, many years later. And so the Holy Spirit was at work even through that tragic uh, event of the shipwreck on the island, even through those trials and even through all of the trauma in order to work out his purposes and build his church. And so Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, who were all traveling together, all of the other prisoners too, all the sailors and the crew of the ship that had been battered into pieces by that storm, they all stayed there in Malta for the three months of winter when when ships couldn't sail on the Mediterranean because of those storms and tempestuous winds and waves. So they were there from around mid-November until about mid-February, which is when the weather turned more more tranquil, and navigation and and shipping and seafaring could start up again in the Mediterranean. And it says that they boarded now their third ship, another ship from Alexandria, like the one that was lost to the storm. This one had gotten there earlier. It had made it safely to Malta. It had been put in one of the safe harbors there in Malta and stayed throughout the winter. It was heading to Italy, again, probably, probably with a full load of grain like the last ship from Alexandria had been because Alexandria was where they grew most of their wheat and grain. Luke says this new ship bore the carved figurehead on its bow of the twin gods. That would have been the sons of Jupiter or the sons of Zeus named Castor and Pollux. They were revered by the Greeks and the Romans as the patron gods of seafaring, of of sea voyagers. And I, I think Luke just mentions that little detail because he loves to point out how people, even in their blindness spiritually, even in their unbelief, people who refuse to honor the one true God and give Him all of the credit for everything good that happens in this world, they still have this impulse to ascribe good things to some God out there, right? To ascribe justice and providence and power to some false deity instead of to the true God. You remember that when Paul was on Malta, he got bit by that snake and the, and the islanders concluded that it was the, the false goddess Dike, the, the false goddess of justice who caused Paul to get bit by that snake. But it wasn't that, it was the one true God of creation who in fact kept Paul from being harmed by that snake in fulfillment of his promises and purposes for Paul. And everything that Luke has so meticulously laid out and recorded for us and chronicled for us all throughout Acts, but especially here in chapters 27 and 28, makes it clear, right, that it's not the Greek gods. They don't even exist. They're just figments of the imagination. It's not Castor and Pollux who are responsible for Paul's safety along this voyage in spite of all of the harrowing things that happened. It's the sovereign hand of the Most High God who Paul worshipped and who Paul served that made sure he was going to get to Rome according to God's everlasting purposes. And so, this is the fulfillment of all of that. They set sail from Malta. They put in at Syracuse, verse 12 says. They stayed there for three days. Syracuse was the capital city of Sicily. Sicily's the, the larger island that lies just to the southwest off the coast of Italy there in the Mediterranean. And Syracuse is a city on the eastern shore 
of that island of Sicily. Matt, Matt Bentley emailed me earlier this week because he was in Sicily this past week on business and he was listening to last week's sermon while he was standing up on Mount Etna looking out at the waters of the Mediterranean when all of this took place. And so he was able to visualize and picture in his mind everything that we're talking about here in the book of Acts. From Syracuse, Luke says, this is verse 13 now, they, they made a circuit and, re, and arrived at Regium on the, on the southern tip of Italy, kind of the, the toe of the boot that, that is the shape of the nation of Italy. To make a circuit probably means that because of the winds, they had to do a fair amount of what's called tacking when you're sailing, kind of zigzagging along and following the winds until they reached Regium on the, co- on the coast there of Italy. From there, a south wind sprang up, uh, verse 13 still, and it, it, that's a wind from the south pushing them northward, which is exactly where they wanted to go. So they were able to travel more than 200 miles northward because of those winds and reach Putioli on the eastern shore of Italy. It's near Naples, and they were able to get that far in just two days after leaving Regium. So they stayed in Putioli for seven days, verse 14 says. They were able to stay with Christian brothers and sisters there. Probably while Julius was awaiting to figure out final instructions for bringing these prisoners into Rome. And so they camped out in Putioli for a week. And they stayed, it says, with Christians. I remember, Paul's never been there. Paul's never been to Italy. This is the furthest that Paul's ever traveled from his home in Tarsus and from Jerusalem where he was a Pharisee. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel has already preceded the Apostle Paul all the way to Italy. God God worked powerfully, God worked mightily through Paul in extraordinary ways, but never ever forget that it's not ultimately because of Paul that anything in the book of Acts happened, right? It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. So everywhere that Paul brought the spark of the gospel, fires were lit from that spark, and fires spread as Christians traveled all around the empire and brought this gospel with them, brought this hope of Israel with them, and and made ready defense of the hope that was in them to people everywhere they went. And in that way, the faith of Jesus Christ spread and Jesus was building His church even in places where Paul hadn't yet been. And that's how it works, Christians. And here, even in Putioli, south of Rome, when Paul arrived in chains after that long, harrowing journey and that long winter, there was a church to welcome him there. There were brothers and sisters in Christ to greet him there, to fellowship with him there, to welcome him, to encourage him, to build him up. I mean, imagine how encouraging it would have been for Paul to come there, to go through everything he's been through, and to providentially be able to spend a whole week surrounded by this warm fellowship of brothers and sisters in Jesus for that week. And imagine how encouraged they would have been, right, to meet Paul. To have God's kind hand of providence guide Paul there along his journey to Rome. I mean, that's got to be an exciting week, right? For these Christians in Putioli. Imagine how much they would have learned from Paul during a whole week with him. What kind of questions would you ask? What kind of teaching would you want to glean from him? 
How much strength would they have gained from him? How much encouragement would they have been given in him over the course of those seven days that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were there? This is the kind hand of God's providence as he builds his church. And so, Luke says there at the end of verse 15, we came to Rome. And here we get into the heart of the end of this story. After a week of fellowship and refreshment in Puteoli, they followed the famed Appian Way all the way into Rome. The oldest, straightest, and most perfectly made of all the Roman roads, Richard Longnecker says, is the Appian Way that led into the city of Rome. And again, notice this, before they even get into Rome itself, before they even get into the city itself, the brothers in Rome, the Christians who were there, Paul's never been there, but there are Christians in Rome. He's already written the letter of Romans to them at least five years before now to the Christians who were there because the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit has preceded Paul. And now these Christians have heard Paul's coming. The one who wrote Romans is coming. Can you imagine as as being the the first people to receive the great book of Romans? The first people to read it. The first people to study it. You've been studying it for the last five years. And now you hear Paul himself is coming. So what do they do? They come all the way out as far, it says, as, as the Forum of Appius, which is 40 miles to the south of the city of Rome. And some of them made it to the three taverns also, which was about 30 miles south of Rome. They walked all that way on foot in order to be able to greet Paul on his way into Rome. They could have just waited in Rome for him to get there, gone about their business. But this is the Apostle Paul. This is the author of the letter to the Romans. And he's been in chains, and he's still in chains, and he's suffered greatly, and they want nothing more than to go and to greet him and to encourage him, to be there with him, to be there for Paul. And on seeing them, Luke says, Paul thanked God and took great courage. Never ever underestimate the great encouragement that you can bring, the great encouragement that you can be if you're willing to to put your own needs into the background and go out of your way just in order to be with another Christian, just in order to bring a blessing to them in whatever season of life they are, if you're willing to walk the, the 30 to 40 miles just in order to bring a blessing to a weary brother or sister along the hard, discouraging journey of their faith, that is how God works in order to strengthen his church. Paul, Paul's own ministry, following in the footsteps of Jesus, has been all about putting his own needs aside, hasn't it? It's been all about self-sacrifice. It's been all about love and service in order to bless others. It's been all about him saying, you know what, it's not about what I get. I don't account my life as worth anything, didn't he say in chapter 20? It's not about me. It's about what I can do to give to others because that is who Jesus has been for me. He gave up everything. And so that's how Paul lived, laying down all of his own rights, laying aside all of his own self-interest, willingly enduring all kinds of suffering, every imaginable kind of loss and hardship and discouragement and disappointment and even persecution in order to bring glory to Jesus and in order to bring 
Jesus to this world. And so here now on this day, it's Paul's turn to receive something. As the Christians in Rome say, you know what? Let's forget about what we're doing for the next couple days and let's take a long walk out and let's meet the Apostle Paul and let's encourage our brother. And so here... Paul's walking in his chains toward Rome. He's going to mention the chains several times here in Acts chapter 28. It's chains that would have bound his hands and feet to one of the soldiers who was leading him. But these weren't just chains like you go and buy at the hardware store. These were big, heavy chains made of big, thick links of iron. And part of the point of the chains wasn't just to bind you so that you couldn't break loose and tie you to somebody who was leading you. It was to weigh you down so that if you were inclined to run, it would be difficult for you to do that. So these chains weighed at least as much as 20 to 40 pounds. Sometimes with a troublesome prisoner, they could weigh as much as the prisoner. A hundred pounds or more so that they would have to lumber along and struggle against the weight of these chains. And here as Paul is walking in his chains, probably not that heavy, but heavy nonetheless, towards Rome, imagine how powerfully encouraging it was to his weary body and soul when the Christians from the city of Rome walked all the way out to meet him and to greet him in the Lord and to be with him and to walk with him along that, again, that 40-mile journey back along the Appian Way into Rome. And we can learn a lot just from that little lesson and how to put our own things aside, our own feelings aside, our own rights aside and say, you know what? It's not about what I get from somebody else. It's what I can give. It's what I can do because that is Christ in me. And when they finally came into Rome, Luke says that Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. And the word for soldier there is the Greek word stratiote. And stratiote refers specifically to a, a commander, not just a foot soldier, but a, a commandant of a, a camp of soldiers. And in this case, in Italy itself, and especially in Rome itself, this would have been the commander of one of the 12 cohorts of the Praetorian Guard in Rome. The Praetorians were very highly trained soldiers. They were the highest paid of Roman soldiers. They were the ones who were tasked with guarding the emperor himself and maintaining order within the city of Rome and throughout Italy itself, while the Roman legion were the ones who who patrolled and enforced Roman rule in all of the other parts of the empire. So this was a very high-ranking soldier, official of the Praetorian Guard, who ended up guarding Paul during his time there in Rome, where Paul was allowed, it says, to stay by himself in a house that he paid for by himself, it says all the way down in verse 30, which means he wasn't in, at this point, the dark, dismal, kind of muddy, mucky prison where most prisoners were kept. They gave him some deference because they knew he wasn't guilty of anything. He hadn't been in any trouble along the way. He'd actually been of great help getting everybody to Rome safely, hadn't he? And so... They give Paul this privilege of being able to stay in a house. He's got to stay in the house. He's not able to wander around. He's got to stay chained to a Roman guard while he's in the house. But at least he's not in prison. So customarily, the guard who was chained to a prisoner like this would be relieved by another soldier after 
after a four-hour stint. So, so as many as six Praetorian guards per day were likely to have been watching over the Apostle Paul during his stay there in Rome, which, as we'll see in a few minutes, is marvelous, as he says in the book of Philippians, because what's Paul doing the whole time in that house? He's talking about the Word of God. He's preaching to people about Jesus Christ. And so the whole Praetorian Guard ends up hearing, all of them in Rome end up hearing the gospel, Paul's going to say in the book of Philippians. In verse 20, again, Paul talks about this chain that he wore. Likely it means that while he's in the house, he's actually chained to those soldiers by the right hand so that he can't leave. And anywhere he tries to go, that soldier's got to go with him. In any case... Even though Paul was technically a prisoner, he wasn't seen as any kind of threat. He wasn't seen as a flight risk. So he's allowed to live there under, under kind of house arrest in a rented home or apartment that at the end of the chapter it says he had to pay for himself out of his own expenses. And it was during this time of house arrest there in Rome that Paul wrote a lot He wrote the letter to the Ephesians. He wrote the letter to the Colossians. He wrote the letter to the Philippians. And he wrote the letter to Philemon, all of which, of course, we have still in our New Testament scriptures because they were inspired and breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit. You remember in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul exhorts Christians to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil? Well, you can picture Paul, right, writing that as he's in this house arrest situation there, chained to an actual Praetorian soldier. And he's able to look and picture how every piece of that guard's armor illustrates the great provisions that God has given us and clothed us, armored us with in our warfare against Satan. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet that are shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And there in the book of Philippians, also written during this time of imprisonment in Rome, Paul Paul makes that great statement in chapter 1, where he says to the Christians over in Macedonia and Philippi, they've heard about his plight. They know he's been in prison. They know he's in custody of the Romans for the past more than two years in Caesarea and now in Rome. They're concerned for him. They're worried about him. What are we going to do? How are we going to get Paul free? But Paul said to them, it's not about my freedom, right? He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has, has actually served to advance the gospel. That's all that matters to Paul. Not his own freedom, but the advancement of the gospel It's served to advance the gospel so that the gospel has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Because he's preaching it to them as they're chained to him day and night in this house in Rome. And they're going and telling one another about it. And pretty soon all of the whole Praetorian Guard in Rome understands the gospel. And he says, it's also been proclaimed to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, most of the Christians in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so God is working, and that's the point, right? 
God is working through Paul's suffering, through Paul's imprisonment, through Paul's chains and bondage and persecution. God is working out his purposes. And if Paul can keep his eyes fixed on the sovereign purposes of God, then that is the secret to contentment that he talks about again in the book of Philippians. By being chained to these soldiers every day, pretty soon the entire cohort of guards knew that Paul was innocent of any crime against Rome and the whole reason for him being there was Christ Jesus and the gospel. Why in the world would Paul put up with that? Why in the world would Paul not just secure his own freedom since he's not guilty? Because Paul's bondage means that the gospel goes in unfettered power in ways that it could never ever go and make an impact in Rome, right? And that's ultimately the the point that Luke is highlighting here in the final chapter of the book of Acts, that even though Paul himself is in bondage, even though he's in chains day and night, even though he's not free personally, through his bondage and imprisonment, the gospel was unhindered there in Rome. Even though the Praetorian guards prevented Paul from leaving, nothing and no one could stop the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and the message of the kingdom from spreading even to the highest levels there in Rome. How else is the whole Praetorian guard ever going to hear the gospel than the Apostle Paul literally being chained to them day and night? And so Paul says, what a wonderful opportunity my suffering is for the advancement of the gospel. And that's what we have to take, not just from chapter 28, but from the whole book of Acts. Are you suffering? Are you struggling? Are there there difficulties in your life? What opportunities might they be bringing for God to glorify Himself through you as He strengthens you, as He gives hope to you in spite of those struggles? And for you to give a defense of that hope and say it's all because of Jesus. For Paul, it's always all about Jesus. And while he was there, Paul was allowed to have visitors. Again, he wouldn't have been able to if he was in the prison, but here under house arrest, he's allowed to have visitors whenever he wants and however many he wants. No no restriction on who, no restriction on how often or how many. And so, verse 17, after three days of being in Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, not his Christian brothers and sisters. He calls together the leaders of the Jewish community there in Rome. These are unbelieving Jewish men. They don't yet have faith in Jesus as their Messiah. Remember, Jesus has sent Paul to Rome in order to testify of him in order to testify of the resurrection. So Paul gets straight to work. He can't go out like he used to do when he visited all the other cities along his journeys. He can't go out to the synagogue. So, let's bring the synagogue in here. Let's bring all of the leaders of the synagogue to the house. And that's what he does. And he does that in part because he's got no idea what these Jewish leaders might have heard about him. Maybe the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, maybe the Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem has sent letters in advance of Paul's coming to Rome in order to appeal with these Jewish people in Rome to help them prosecute Paul before the emperor and, and seek Paul's execution. 
And so Paul wants to appeal to these guys, but again, it's not first and foremost in defense of himself. As we've seen so many times before, Paul's going to defend himself against false accusations, but only in service of giving a defense of the gospel. Now Paul calls these Jewish men who are not believers in Jesus, he calls them brothers there, doesn't he? In verse 17. But he doesn't mean brother in the same sense as when he's talking about his relationship to fellow Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord. Here he doesn't mean my spiritual brothers. Here he means my my ethnic brothers. Paul's Jewish. They're Jewish. That's what he means. He's identifying himself as one of them. A Jewish brother of theirs. And what he wants to do is to assure them that as a Jewish person, he's done nothing in violation of Jewish law or of the Scriptures, or of the customs and traditions that come from the Scriptures that are such an important part of their Jewish heritage. Because he says in verse 20, everything that he's done, everything that he's gone through, everything that's happened to him has all been for the sake of the hope of Israel. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Now Paul's, Paul's talked like this before, hasn't he? He's defended himself against false accusations of the, the Sanhedrin and the leaders from Jerusalem by appealing to the fact that all he's been doing is defending the hope of Israel. What does he mean? What's the hope of Israel? It's Jesus, right? He means that the same hope that every single Jewish person has, which is rooted and grounded in the promises of God, made throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, hope of a Messiah, a King who would deliver and save and establish an eternal kingdom of, of peace and righteousness that would never fail. Hope, this is hope that the Pharisees knew, right? Remember, hope that God would defeat every enemy of His people, including the last enemy, which is death itself. The hope that Job spoke of, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the end He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Hope of the resurrection. The Pharisees had that hope. Paul grew up with that hope. All Jewish people have these hopes. And Paul is saying, I share all of this hope that all of you have, and I have found it. I have come to know its fulfillment. I've done nothing wrong. I've just come to understand who the hope is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the King of Kings. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of. He is the first fruit of many who will be raised from the dead in Him and inherit everlasting life in Him because He was raised from the dead. And more than anything, what Paul wants is for his Jewish brethren who have hoped for so long for all of that. What he wants more than anything is for them to now come to understand that the fulfillment of all that hope is what he's come to believe in Christ alone. And so he says, just listen, just hear me, guys. And they say, well, no letters have been sent from Jerusalem. No messengers have come from the Sanhedrin to speak evil of Paul. But they have heard 
plenty of negative criticism from all over the place about this sect that Paul represents of people who follow after the Nazarene, these so-called Christians who are now covering the landscape of the entire empire, thanks in large part to this former Pharisee named Paul. They say, we've heard a lot of bad about what you represent. So here now he's come to Rome, he's invited them into his home, and they want him to, to explain his views to them. And so they set up a time, verse, a day, verse 23, when they could all come and hear from Paul. And on that day, a bunch of them came. They filled the house. They probably were standing outside the windows, pressing in, in order to hear. And all day long, from early in the morning to late in the evening, Paul testifies to all of these Jewish people from Rome about the kingdom of God. Tries to convince them that Jesus is the true and only Messiah. He's he's reasoning with them from the scriptures, from the law of Moses, from the prophets, from the whole Old Testament, showing them that all throughout, it's Christ who is promised. The historical man, Jesus, is the fulfillment of everything that the scriptures have proclaimed. And once again here, we see what's happened so many times before when it comes to Paul preaching to the Jews. The message of Jesus Christ crucified splits the Jewish audience into two. Some were convinced and believed, and others did not. They disbelieved, it says. There are several English translations that say there, they would not believe, or they refused to believe, and that's really how it ought to be taken It's not just that they didn't understand. It's not just that rationally they didn't get it and they couldn't put two and two together. It's not just that they remained skeptical, like one translation says. It's not that somehow Paul wasn't able to be persuasive enough. No, there was intent. There was intent behind their unbelief. And that's... When it comes to the gospel, that's always the case. Here's what's important. Biblically speaking, unbelief is not first and foremost a rational problem. It's not first and foremost an intellectual problem. Biblically speaking, people who refuse to believe the the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sin, it's not a rational problem, it's an ethical problem problem. It's a heart problem. It's not a head problem first. It's a problem of suppressing the clear truth in the unrighteousness of the sinful soul. And that, see, that is exactly what Paul points out to these unbelieving Jews. And he does it from their scriptures. Specifically, the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 6 that we read earlier in the service today. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And he attributes that prophecy to the Holy Spirit, right? And he says that specifically to these unbelieving Jews. They know that. They know that the Old Testament Scriptures are not just pinned by human minds and imaginations. That these are the words of God spoken, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. They believed that the Scriptures were God's Word. And so Paul is saying to them, listen, I have spent all day 
showing you all how marvelously and how clearly and how obviously Jesus has fulfilled all of the predictions and prophecies of the Word of God, but you have rejected it all. And by doing that, Paul says to them now, by rejecting it, you have horribly fulfilled the very thing that Isaiah prophesied and spoke of. Remember from our reading earlier? It was in Isaiah chapter 6, right? That Isaiah saw that, that wonderful and also terrible vision of God in his temple, in all of his blazing holiness, surrounded by the seraphim. Even they had to cover their faces before him, cover their feet before him, as they cried out to one another, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. And Lord there in Isaiah is all capitals, meaning it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of the Most High God, the name that He gave Himself to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, you tell them that I am sent you. That's what the angels call Him. And He's holy, 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 this great I am, this eternal Almighty God. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that's why Isaiah, when he saw that vision of God's holiness, he was undone. He saw the contrast of his own sin. And the contrast of the sin of his people. And as he confessed that sin to the holy, almighty Lord God, the seraphim took that burning coal and touched his lips. Behold, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And then what? Then the Lord commissioned Isaiah to go. In that time, in that place, in the midst of all of Israel's sin and wickedness, all of the idolatry that was polluting Jerusalem and the temple of God, Isaiah was supposed to go and proclaim the truth of God's word. But you remember from those verses, there was a providentially planned futility that God intended to accompany Isaiah's ministry of the Word of God. They're not going to listen. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. God said to Isaiah, this is what your ministry is going to consist of. Make the heart of this people dull, not sharp. Make their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be turned and healed. Lest they turn and be healed. It's not God's purpose in that time, in that place for them to turn. And to heed the word of God and to be healed. It's not God's purpose for them to hear and repent and receive a great outpouring of God's mercy. It's God's purpose in Isaiah's day for Isaiah to preach the word of God in a way that would harden the people's heart and and such that they would keep on rejecting the word of God through Isaiah and ripening themselves for the day of judgment that would come. So that instead of pouring out His mercy upon them then, it would have been His justice that they would receive, His holiness that they would receive. 
And now you understand why Paul's quoting those verses here in Acts 28? After a full day of pleading with his Jewish brothers to see Jesus as the true Christ, in their unbelief, they've rejected it, and that is an indicator of their sinful and deliberately hard hearts towards God. You're fulfilling Isaiah 6. Now listen. John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, also John quoted these same verses from Isaiah chapter 6 when the people to whom Jesus was ministering and teaching, when they refused to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. And so Jesus went and departed from them. He hid himself from them, right? And John, reflecting on that, attributes the unbelief of the people who saw Jesus, who heard from Jesus, who watched Jesus do miracles, but refused to believe in Him. John attributes that unbelief to the same thing that God said to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. John says, though Jesus had done so many signs and wonders before them, they still did not believe so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord be revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because of their stubbornly hard hearts. Then, listen to this. Then John quotes the rest of those same verses. Again from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see, lest they understand, lest they turn and be healed. And then in the very next verse, John 1241, John says this, having quoted Isaiah 6, right? He says, he says, Isaiah said all of those things because Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw whose glory? Yeah. Well, John, John's talking about Jesus, isn't he? That's the whole point there in John chapter 12, that the unbelieving Jews had, had rejected Jesus, and that's why John quotes Isaiah 6 as an explanation of why they rejected Jesus in the hardness of their hearts. And then he says that Isaiah had said all of those things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. He saw Christ's glory and spoke of Him. Understand that. That is... Clearly and undeniably what John says in John 12, 41, that the awesome vision of the glory of the Lord, the awesome vision of Yahweh, the awesome vision of the great I Am filling the temple as the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 that which Isaiah saw of the Almighty God, whose glory fills the whole earth, was a vision of Jesus. Was a vision of of the second person of the eternal triune Godhood who then came and took on human flesh and walked on this earth as He came, God Himself, to seek and save that which was lost and to give up Himself as a ransom for many and to lay His own human life down in order to give eternal life to all who would believe on Him. Jesus isn't just a merely human messenger of God. Jesus isn't just a Messiah and King sent from God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who has all of the authority and all of the power to forgive sins Himself 
Sin is ultimately against God, and no one can forgive it but God Himself. And so Jesus will save everyone who calls upon His name. You remember Peter said that all the way back in Acts chapter 2, quoting the Old Testament prophets again. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. Peter's quoting that and saying Yahweh is Jesus and if you call on His name, you're calling out to God Himself for salvation and He will save you. And see, Paul knows that, right? He's known that all along, ever since chapter 9, when it wasn't what he did, but what God did to him in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul knows he can't save anyone, right? Paul knows no one can save themselves, right? No mere human can save anyone. Only God Himself saves anyone. And that's precisely who Jesus is. The Savior of all who believe and all who call on His name. But as Paul had said in the letter that he wrote to the Christians in Rome, the book of Romans, five years earlier he wrote, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In God's great wisdom and sovereign purpose, many ethnic Jews would be left by God in their hard-hearted unbelief, while the eyes and hearts of many Gentiles were opened by the gospel to living faith in Jesus as the sovereign Savior of a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation across this globe. And so the unbelief of many Jews, ethnic Jews, in spite of the clear testimony of their own scriptures to the reality that Jesus is the only true Messiah, while that's very, very tragic to Paul, while it breaks Paul's heart, it doesn't surprise Paul because the prophets had foretold it. Listen to Paul's own broken-hearted words in Romans chapter 9. He's writing to Christians in Rome, most of whom are Gentiles and not Jews. And he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart regarding the ethnic Jews living in Rome and all around the empire. Because they've rejected the Messiah. And so they're under God's curse. And he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my Jewish brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. Look how much God's done for them in the past. The patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. He came from their lineage. The Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. But despite all of that blessing that God poured out on the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, all the glory, the covenants, the promises, the scriptures, the Christ who came from them, they've rejected Him. 
They've rejected the Most High God Himself. And that causes unceasing anguish in Paul's heart. But, but, he says, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not as though God's promise to save Israel has failed because Israel is rejecting Christ. Because so many Jewish people have rejected God. And the reason why, Paul says, is that the promise of God's salvation to the descendants of Abraham were intended all along to bless the whole world. Because God said that He would bless the offspring of Abraham. And when He said that, He didn't just mean the physical offspring of Abraham. Listen. Romans 9, verse 6. Listen. The Jews rejecting their Messiah does not mean that the promise of God to save the descendants of Abraham has failed. Why not? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. But as the scripture says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Does that seem confusing? You find yourself asking, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel? What does that mean? What does it mean that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring? How can that be? Of course they're they're his children if they're his offspring, right? What is Paul talking about? Well, very fortunately for us, Paul explains exactly what he's talking about. In verse 8 of Romans 9, he says, This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God never intended for Abraham's offspring to be numbered just according to the flesh. God made a promise to the descendants of Abraham. And when He made it, He didn't intend it for the physical offspring of Abraham. Only for the the children of the flesh. He intended it for the children of the promise. They're the ones who are counted as Abraham's offspring and therefore children of God because they believed God's promise and were saved. So Paul is saying there are lots of physical descendants of Abraham. Ethnic Jews who in their unbelief are actually not Abraham's true offspring according to God's accounting. They don't actually belong to Israel as God himself constitutes Israel and defines Israel. That's what Paul's saying. And there are, on the other side of the coin, by God's great grace, lots and lots of people who are not physically descended from Abraham who do believe in the promises of God all of which are fulfilled in Christ. And so, even though they're not physical offspring of Abraham, they are counted as children of the promise, as children of Abraham, as belonging to Israel, and as being children of God. This is what Paul wants the people in Rome to get. It's mind-blowing. Paul had written the same thing to the Christians in the churches around Galatia, so many of whom, again, most of whom were Gentile believers in Jesus because the Jews were rejecting Jesus. 
And to them, Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 3, in Christ Jesus, you all, you Gentile Christians, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so now there's neither Jew nor Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a, a physical descendant of Abraham or not. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Jesus. And listen, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, you Gentiles. That's what Paul says. I don't, I, don't, I don't care whose blood you have in your veins. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, Paul says. And you are thereby heirs according to the promise. And so see, as heartbreakingly tragic as it is for Paul that his Jewish brethren, according to the flesh, his kinsmen according to the flesh, in their unbelief, in their hard-heartedness, as tragic as it is that they've rejected their own Messiah, it is profoundly awesome to Paul that in Jesus Christ, this great mystery of God has now been unveiled, that the promises that were made to Abraham, that the promises that were made to his offspring, that the promises that were made to Israel, were meant for the whole world all along. Verse 28 then of Acts 28 here, Paul says, and I believe he's saying it with tears in his eyes, To these unbelieving Jews in Rome who would not listen, he says, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles for they will listen according to God's purposes. Not that God's purpose has changed. Not that God said what I really wanted is to see all of the ethnic Jews come to faith, but but they didn't. Doggone it, my purpose failed. I guess I better move on to plan B. No, no, no. There's no plan B with God, right? God's gracious purpose all along was to constitute and consecrate for himself a holy nation called Israel, which would be made up of people from every tongue and every nation in the whole world who put their faith by God's grace in the promise of God that was first made to Abraham to bless the whole world through Abraham's seed and that seed is Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16, he's the seed. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the blessing for the whole world. Everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Everyone who is in him through faith is Abraham's offspring. Doesn't matter what nation you're from. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what your social status is. Doesn't matter what you're, whether you're male or female. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're a child of Abraham. You're a child of God. Father Abraham had many sons. Have you ever sing that in Sunday school? And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right? I mean, see, this is a mind-blowing reality that Paul has come to comprehend in the grand and mysterious purposes of God, all of which have come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the one that Isaiah saw and spoke of. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Jesus is the Savior of Israel, which is the whole world. 
Right? No wonder at the end of Romans chapter 11, where, where Paul has unpacked this great mystery of God's sovereign grace and mercy for the whole world, he's done it for three whole chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, and at the end of that whole excursus, Paul just breaks out with those great words of awe and wonder, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of God? Who has become His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, to Him are all things to whom belongs the glory forevermore. This is what Paul wants his brothers to believe. And listen, as we leave the book of Acts which closes with Paul there in Rome under house arrest for two years, welcoming all who came to him, all proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. As we leave this book full of the same sense of awe and wonder at God's great wisdom and knowledge and ways, be filled also with the same singular life-defining urgency because of that great awe and wonder in God's marvelous ways, that urgency that drove Paul to preach Christ, to plead with people everywhere, to call on His name and be saved. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. There is but one way. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Be filled with the same urgency that Paul was filled in to forsake yourself and every earthly interest and everything that matters to you and be devoted to the kingdom of Christ and to plead with people. And as you do, be filled with the same confidence that Paul had that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, whether they're Jews or Greeks. That it's God who has the purpose and the power to save and to open blind eyes and raise people to newness of life in Christ. And be filled with the same indomitable boldness of Paul, knowing that no matter what the world does to us, knowing that no matter how the, how the world and the nations rage and shake their fists at God, which they're doing more and more in our day, no matter how loudly Satan roars as he prowls around this world, there is nothing that can hinder the gospel. Speak it boldly, and God will do His work. There is nothing that can stay God's sovereign hand. There is nothing, there is no one who can thwart God's purposes to redeem people from every tongue and every nation out of the darkness of, in this, of this world and, and make them to be everlasting citizens of the eternal kingdom of Jesus, the blessed Son. God is building a nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, Peter says. Jesus Christ will build His church. No matter what's going on out there, the gates of hell themselves will not and cannot prevail against Jesus' church. Amen? We'll be done with the book of Acts. Let's pray together.
Our God and our Father, as we consider everything that we've learned from this great book of Acts, as we have followed along the journey of the Holy Spirit's great power in this world, and as Jesus Christ has fulfilled His promise to build His church, as we've seen everything that the Apostle Paul went through and endured, and all of the boldness and all of the confidence with which he proclaimed Christ crucified everywhere he went, and as we behold the great indomitable power of the Gospel at work in the book of Acts, may we recognize, Father, that you are still at work, that you are still building your church, that all of the wickedness and evil in this world is not thwarting your purposes, that you are still calling people out of darkness and into the light. And may you fill us with boldness and may you fill us with confidence. And may you give us grace to persevere and endure and run the race with endurance. And may you glorify yourself in your church as you build your church. Father, all of this we pray in the great name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, our Savior, our King. And in His name we say, Amen.